Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 31 for the third quarter of April 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is photographic claims related to the Apollo moon hoax. Now, it's been a while since I talked about this subject, so for those of you who forgot or are not familiar with it, the basic claim here is that somehow, in some way, NASA faked the moon landings, the Apollo moon landings, in some way, shape, or form. There are various claims of evidence that people point to, and I've talked about some of them in episodes 5, 7, and 11. I've avoided talking about the photography because this is a podcast, not a vodcast. Because well over half of the claims have to do with photography, though, this is going to be a part one episode, and I'll do a part two edition later on. The theme this time is going to be more towards the lines of photographic evidence where you don't need to be staring at photos to get the idea. Next time, you kind of sort of will, so I'll try to paint pictures with my eloquent and mesmerizing voice. So to get right down to it, the first claim is really one of the more minor ones, even though it's one that people frequently link to my blog about, and that's the idea that the astronauts did not have enough time to take all of the photographs that NASA claims were taken on the moon. The numbers go something like this, and I promise that this is the only math and that it's simple algebra for this episode. During the six successful moon landing missions, there were approximately 5,771 photographs taken during a time of roughly 4,834 minutes. Simple division shows that they must have taken 1.19 photographs per minute, or about one photo every 50 seconds. This seems kind of rapid if they're also supposed to be planting flags, taking samples, setting up experiments, tipping the chauffeur, and other sorts of things. Now you can start to see why this is a faulty claim by first doubling the number of astronauts on the surface. There were two, not one. The math that's done only accounts for one astronaut. So right away, instead of 4,834 minutes on the lunar surface to take these photos, it's more like 9,668 minutes, or about 161 person hours. So that's more like 1 minute 40 seconds between each shot for each astronaut. Another reason why this is wrong is that it assumes a constant photograph rate, with one photo taken exactly 100 seconds apart. That's not how photographs are taken. For example, if both astronauts got off the craft and each took two photos right away, then they have over three minutes before they would quote-unquote need to take another photo in order to account for the average. Or, if they took four photographs really quickly as soon as they got off, then they'd have over six and a half minutes before needing to take another one for the average to work out. Think of the last time you went on a sightseeing trip or vacation. For me, it was to Washington, D.C., where I was on the National Mall and visited a few museums. I spent a total of somewhere around four hours on the National Mall, and I took around 240 photographs. This means that I must have taken one photo every single minute. I mean, after all, four hours, 240 photos, 240 divided by four is 60 photos an hour. There's 60 minutes an hour, so one photo a minute. How could I have done anything else? 
The answer, of course, is that I would walk around 15 minutes to a half hour, take a bunch of photos of, for example, the White House, and then walk another 20 minutes to the Washington Monument, take another dozen photos over the span of 30 seconds, then walk 40 minutes to the Lincoln Memorial, take a six-photo panorama in four seconds, and take a bunch of photos inside, etc., etc., etc. People shoot in bursts. That's what the astronauts did. They set up equipment or collected samples, then would take a 20-photo panorama in the space of a minute or so. Or they would snap a quick photo while they were setting something up or collecting their samples. A single 20-photo panorama means they didn't need to shoot anything else for over 15 minutes in order to still make that average work out. That brings us to the next claim that you might be wondering about with rapid-fire photos. The photographs are simply too good. If the cameras were so difficult to manipulate, how were thousands of photos taken with crystal clarity and precise framing? The pictures that we see that allegedly were taken on the moon are absolutely perfect. The key phrase here is the pictures that we see. The reason why this claim is out there and is very incorrect is one that I'll return to in the follow-up episode. The Apollo missions were in part a science endeavor, but let's face it, a big part of them was a public relations campaign and to prove to them red Soviets and the world that a free country was better than a communistical type. This was also 1969 and the early 1970s. Photographs were expensive to print and reproduce, so if you have rolls upon rolls of film with nearly 6,000 photographs taken, your PR department is going to go through them and pick out maybe the top 10 from each mission. Those are what's going to be released. If the astronaut accidentally took a picture of their leg, that's not what they're going to spend hundreds of dollars reproducing and sending out to newspapers and television stations and magazines when there's another photo of the astronaut proudly saluting the American flag, the flag of freedom, truth, justice, and of course, the American way. And that's what they did. Nowadays, pixels and electrons are cheap, and you can go to any number of archival websites from Apollo and see almost every photograph that the astronauts took. In fact, I'll link up to a few in the show notes. You will see panoramas that I spoke of before, and you'll see hundreds of really, really bad photos that weren't released to the media in the 1960s and 70s, but they're freely available now online. Often a follow-up claim to the photos just being too darn good is that, well, the astronauts on the moon simply could not have taken them. What about the still photography? Some say the design of the bulky spacesuits would have made it extremely difficult for the astronauts to operate their chest-mounted cameras. The man who designed these cameras is Jan Lundberg. Once on the moon, on the lunar surface, in the dress, in the life support system, you couldn't see the camera. They couldn't bend their head that far down. They had no viewfinder. They had to aim by moving their body. This is an interesting argument from authority, getting the guy who actually designed the cameras. Now, what's really interesting here is if we ignore the context that Agent Skinner set up for us and just listen to what the camera designer actually said. You couldn't see the camera. They couldn't bend their head that far down. They had no viewfinder. They had to aim by moving their body. What he said is exactly the way the astronauts did this. The cameras were mounted on the astronaut's chest. They aimed by moving their body. 
not really that hard when you're using a wide-angle lens so that you only have to be aiming in the general direction of what you want to photograph in order to actually photograph it. And, of course, the astronauts were trained to do this for years. Remember, this was a PR campaign. One of the first things of importance, beyond getting people there and back, was to take photos. If the astronauts would not have been able to manipulate the cameras while they were in their spacesuits, they would have been caught in something like 1965, and a way around it would have been figured out. That's why they designed the cameras with extra-large buttons and adjustment mechanisms so that they could actually do this. They didn't bring cameras like the $200 or $100 or $400 point-and-shoots that you have today with buttons that are only a few millimeters across. These were designed to be operated by people with bulky gloves and equipment on. So in addition to being able to manipulate the camera elements easily and being able to just orient their bodies in the general direction that they wanted to take a picture in, the last part of this claim is the focusing issue. This gets into a little bit of optical physics. If any of you have at least a semi-manual camera, something that you can do is put it into an AV mode, or aperture value, or aperture priority. This is where you can set the aperture of the lens. In an exposure, there are three things in film that control how much light reaches the film plate and is recorded. The first is the film speed, basically how sensitive the film is. That's kind of fixed in the mission, and it's not something that we can really vary. The modern digital equivalent is ISO. The second piece that controls the amount of light is the shutter speed, how long the shutter remains open to let the light in. The third is the aperture. If you're not familiar with that term, it means opening. So the aperture of your refrigerator is your refrigerator door. The aperture of your eye is your pupil. And your pupil can go from really wide open or dilated, a large aperture, to a really small one to let less light in. Just like your pupil, the maximum aperture of a camera is the diameter of the lens. But you can change the aperture to let less light in. Now you might be wondering how this has anything to do with focus. A side effect of aperture is that this will change how much of an image is in focus. If you have a really open aperture, a really large aperture, which also happens to correspond to a very small f number, like an f2 lens, then the focus is going to be very limited. So if you photographed a ruler that was pointing away from you, only a small part of that ruler would be in focus. If you use a smaller aperture, or a bigger f number, like f11, then when you photograph that ruler pointing away from you, a lot more of the ruler will be in focus. So the astronauts used larger F numbers, or smaller apertures, in their photographs in order to make sure that the photograph was mostly in focus. And they also had adjustment rings on the camera so that they could turn them to have those be in focus for an object that they guesstimated the distance to. So in the end, for this claim, the astronauts used wide-angle lenses, or in later missions with narrow-angle lenses, they had sighting rings. So they just had to point their bodies in the general direction that they wanted to take a picture. They adjusted the camera's focus with the extra-large adjustment mechanisms to appropriately approximate the distance to the object that they wanted to photograph. And they used smaller aperture values to have more depth of focus so that they didn't have to be as accurate in their guesstimate of distance. 
a fourth photography claim that has absolutely nothing to do with what's actually in the photographs is a claimed study found repeated by Bennett and Percy in their book Dark Moon. The quote goes, David Groves, Ph.D., has shown that the X-ray environment of space would quickly render any photographs unusable. Now, this is an interesting claim, one that you'd surely think that NASA would have thought about. But then, you know, you have this guy who has a friggin' PhD who says that it's impossible. When I used to give talks on the Apollo moon hoax claims as a graduate student, it was very easy for me to say that all because you have someone who has a PhD after their name, it does not mean that they know what they're talking about. And now that I do have a PhD after my name, and a doctor in front of it, I can verify that all because someone has a PhD after their name doesn't mean they know what the heck they're talking about. Those of you who have been with this podcast for a while know that I've made mistakes or said wrong things, and I've later come back to correct them. And that's really what this study is. It's wrong and full of mistakes. To start with, David Groves, PhD, did not use the same film, same shielding, nor even the same brand of camera that the Apollo astronauts did. You'd think that this might be important. For example, if NASA had figured out a way to shield the film from the radiation environment by putting, say, a thick layer of plastic around something, then you'd think that that might be important to duplicate in your experiment. But it gets worse. Groves exposed the film to 8 mega-electron volt X-rays, as opposed to the average X-ray energy from space, which is 5 kilo-electron volts. Now, it's not really important to know what an electron volt is. Rather, what's important is the mega versus kilo. Mega means million, like megabyte. Kilo means thousand, like kilogram. So, he exposed the film to over 1,000 times the strength of radiation that the Apollo film experienced. But it gets even worse. Groves not only exposed the film to stronger radiation, but he also exposed it to more radiation, about the equivalent of six years' worth of radiation instead of one to three weeks' worth. To create an analogy that I'm hopefully now famous for being good at, this is sort of like taking a trolley car or a buggy, attaching some sort of giant motor to it, and then trying to drive it around the Indy 500 racetrack for a month. When it crashes and burns and falls apart, you would now claim that it is physically impossible for a car to survive the Indy 500. So it's all a sham and all of those Indy drivers and sponsors and fans are in on the conspiracy. Same exact thing. The final claim that I'm going to talk about in this episode is similar to the last. Not that the film would have been rendered unusable by x-rays, but that it would either freeze and crack in the extreme cold of space or melt in the extreme heat. After all, the temperature on the moon goes from minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit at night to positive 200 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. How could it have survived? Well, first off, those are minimum and maximum temperatures, not necessarily the temperatures that the astronauts experienced, especially considering that they landed on the day side during early morning. If they landed on the night side, they would have not been able to communicate with Earth, and that would have been extra stupid and it's one of the reasons I have some issues with the third Transformers movie. But that's a different episode. Another problem with this claim is that it assumes that as soon as you are in the environment of a given temperature, you become that temperature, and that the moon actually has an environment for you to become that temperature of. So let's start with the first part, 
why the film didn't immediately heat up or cool down to the claimed temperature. Please use some common sense for this one. If you put something on the stove or in the oven, it does not immediately heat up. It takes time. If you put something in the refrigerator or freezer, it does not immediately cool down. It takes time. The same would happen on the moon if you were stupid enough to put film canisters on the lunar surface. It would take time to change the temperature. The second part is more subtle, and it gets into what I talked about in my previous episodes on the moon hoax. All because stuff happens on Earth and your common sense is attuned to that, it does not mean it happens the same way on the moon. There are three ways to transfer heat. One is called radiation, and that's the least efficient. The radiative method is basically how the sun's heat gets to Earth and the other planets and the other moons. It's also the idea behind heat lamps and cafeterias to keep your french fries and pizza warm. The second method is called conduction, and that's where you transfer heat by physically placing an object in contact with another, where the two have different temperatures. An example of conduction is putting a cake in the oven, where the heated air physically touches the cake batter. Or putting a pot of water on the stove to boil. The heating element of the stove physically touches the bottom of the pot, and that physically touches the water to heat them both up. The third method is convection, and that's the most efficient. That's where you physically mix two things together. For example, fill two cups with water. Put an ice cube in each. Let the ice cube sit in one, but stir the other one. You'll see that the ice melts much faster in the one that you stir because you're physically mixing the materials together. So on Earth, the way that we move heat around is that the sun's radiative energy is absorbed by the ground and the ocean. The ground and the ocean physically touch the bottom of the atmosphere, conducting heat to it. The atmosphere then mixes that heat around, convecting it. On the moon, we stop at the first step. The sun's energy is absorbed by the lunar surface. That's it. Since there's effectively zero atmosphere, unless you believe John Lear, then there is no way for that heat to move except to radiate back to space or conduct through the surface of the moon. When the astronauts were on the lunar surface, they did conduct heat through the bottoms of their boots, but that's a very slow process, and the boots were insulated, and the lunar surface is a poor conductor of heat, and the film had extra insulation. And the astronauts wore white suits to reflect that radiated heat. And that's why the film wasn't in danger from the plus or minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit heat of the lunar surface. Now finally, I'd like to remind everyone that by going through these, I am not trying to directly show that we did go to the moon. That's a different episode. I'm demonstrating why we didn't not go to the moon. I also think that it's important to point out in this and other conspiracy featuring episodes that there will always be claims I did not address. And I'm sure people who believe in the conspiracy will point out those claims. What I ask of you, as hopefully thinking listeners, is to remember that the claims that I've addressed are many of the main ones that conspiracy people point to as ironclad evidence that we did not go to the moon. Even if you don't believe one of my debunkings or explanations, or two or three of them, what about the others? And if I've successfully shown that some of the best claimed evidence is wrong, and in fact it shows that they did go to the moon, 
or that it's at least not evidence the Apollo astronauts didn't go to the moon, then that should cast serious doubt upon the hoax idea. This episode's Q&A comes from Donovan W., or Ravenhull, on the SGU message boards, from Mobile, Alabama, USA. They asked a second question about magnetic fields. How strong, if we know, are the magnetic poles of the other inner planets? I do know that the Jovian planets have rather strong magnetic fields surrounding them, but I've not heard about Mercury, Venus, or Mars. I do seem to remember it said that Mars does not have a significant equivalent of our Van Allen belts, which allowed the solar wind to strip away much of the planet's atmosphere. And what of our moon? To answer, we do know a great deal about the inner planets and lunar magnetic fields. Venus has none. The moon also has no magnetic field, but there are some areas that are faintly magnetized. Mars also has no global magnetic field, but we think that it did have one at one point, because there are parts of the crust that are very strongly magnetized. Work that actually I'm doing, based upon follow-up work from a 2008 study, points to the death of the Martian dynamo around 4.1 billion years ago, fairly soon after its formation, only 400 million years. That's also, as Ravenhall said, why, or Donovan said, why Mars has very little atmosphere today, whereas we think that it had much more in the past. Without a magnetic field to protect the atmosphere from the solar wind and other sources, then the solar wind can effectively strip the atmosphere away, literally like a wind blowing the atmosphere away. One wind blowing another wind away. It's interesting how things work. Mercury, on the other hand, has a very strong and active magnetic field. We're not really sure why, and figuring out why it has a stronger field than Earth is one of the principal goals of the MESSENGER mission that is currently orbiting Mercury. It has been for a year, and it was just renewed for an extended mission for yet another Earth year in order to try to answer these kinds of questions. And that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. There's no feedback for this week, so it's time for the puzzler, where each odd quarter episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking-based question, loosely based upon the material discussed in the main segment. I went over episode 29's puzzler in episode 30, so we'll get right on to this one. In this episode, with the main segment on photography claims related to the Apollo moon hoax, I'm going to set the stage for one of the claims I didn't go over, but will in a future episode. To do this puzzler, you'll need to have a camera that has manual control in terms of its exposure settings. Go outside at night and take a photograph of the moon that's correctly exposed so you can see features on it, so that it's not all white or all black. Then, take another photo so that you can see stars in it. Use the same settings you used for exposing the moon and use those for the stars. Then use the same settings you took for the stars and take a photo of the moon. What's the result? To get quote-unquote full credit on this, you'll need to provide the four photographs, which I'll post with your name or handle to the show notes for episode 33 when we go over this. So to recap, figure out how to take a photograph of the moon so that you can see detail. Then figure out how to take a photograph of the stars. 
They don't have to be sharp. Or they don't have to show trails. They don't have to be just points. Just so that you can actually see them in the photograph. Then use the settings on the camera that you used for the moon and see if you can see stars with that setting. Then use the setting that you actually used to photograph the stars and take a picture of the moon. What's the result? Try to do this sort of different type of puzzler and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next Odd Quarter episode. And that episode will be about the Flat Earth. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send it in. By way of announcements, just the standard one now, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. that's D-R, Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. And that wraps up this topic for the 31st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it, and learned a little at the same time. And I'm not quite sure why it sounded like I was talking into a tin can during this episode. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sgrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast.sgrdesign.net, Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website or funny fourth thing. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback, even if I don't respond immediately or within a month or so. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also, tell your friends and family. 